a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Whether you're a longtime wrong thinker or a pretty new to the whole concept, I'm glad you're here. Our program is brought to you by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. And I have links to every one of these sponsors, which you can find in the show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com. Um, just by way of explanation, I publish show notes for every episode that I do. So every time, uh, every time I do the show... I have uh, different articles that I'm sharing. I have different guests that come on and and, uh, and speak to you. And I always have links that you can follow just on the off chance that you're one of those truth seekers who wants to know things for themselves. Right? You're, real, you're willing to do your own homework, not just, you know, Google a couple of articles and then declare yourself having researched this deeply. <laughs> no, you, you are actually willing to dig in and uh, see what you can learn. So that's what it's there for. It's not uh, because everything that I'm posting is the absolute truth and the only thing you should believe. I'm just trying to give you the best information that I can find. What you do with it, that is entirely up to you. We've got a lot to talk about today. So yesterday, the president uh, made his speech. Yes, uh, his bold six-point speech to this is how we're going to get control of this virus. Okay, right there from the beginning... I mean, just from the very premise that a politician just has to make the follow, following policy announcements or we have to address these policy points and the virus is going to fall into line and we're going to be in control of it. I'm sorry, but there are actually a lot of uh, there, there's a lot of human history, including times when we didn't even know what viruses were. But now we do. Viruses do not respond to politicians words. They do what viruses do, which is they spread, they run their course, and that's how it is. That's how it has always been. But, you know, maybe like me, you've got the impression that there's something more at stake here than just simply, wait, we're just trying to do what's right by the public health. So maybe threatening 100 million Americans with the loss of their livelihoods, unless they obey the demand to get the jab, gee, I don't know, maybe that really is in our best interest. But look, after the speech yesterday, which I, I have to give credit to uh, to the uh, um, Babylon Bee. I mean, they are just on target, and and probably the most accurate recounting of what actually was was said by the president yesterday was he essentially announced uh, civil war. I know it's supposed to be funny, and I and I want to laugh, but uh, I want you to hear how the Babylon Bee says says this, and then. Tell me there's not more truth in you. This is probably the most accurate thing that was, that was published yesterday, news-wise. In a stirring address to the country today, Biden has announced a new civil war. Look, folks, here's the deal. For real this time, no joke. The words on the screen I'm supposed to read are saying that we're going to force millions of people to get vaccinated against their will. Got to do it, folks, said Biden as he read off the teleprompter. To enforce this, we're just going to have ourselves a little civil war. It's been a while since we had one of those. Let's just fight it out until all the unvaccinated people are dead or we're all dead, which will stop the spread of COVID. Win-win, folks. Now, Biden assured the American people they will lose the upcoming civil war as they don't have any F-15s or nukes. 
Any unvaccinated Americans who survive will be sent to special camps where they will learn the importance of getting vaccinated. For real, I don't see how anyone can be against this. Come on, man, Biden said. Oh, and there's an update here. After reading an article in the Huffington Post that unvaccinated people are just like the Taliban, Biden immediately surrendered to them and gave them a bunch of free weapons. Well, I want mine. (laughs) I just, I kid. But uh, yeah, push came to shove. And the government chose to shove. And, I mean, the writing is on the wall here for anybody who is paying attention. It should be very clear right now. No bureaucrat, no candidate, no politician at any level of government is coming to save you. Now, what this means is you and I will be free to the exact degree that we are willing to be defiant. Oh, I know, that's that's kind of a radical thing to say, but... You know, I'm not the one who made a speech that threatened, you know, to to take control of, you know, major businesses or most businesses with 100 employees or more or, you know, to mandate every federal employee will get the stick. Nope. That's on uh, that's on the people in power. Now, here's the good news. There is a timeless tradition of non-compliance. So if, if you are hearing or if you're perhaps even saying the words, we will not comply, You may see that as a modern trend, but the truth is civil disobedience has a very rich history in America. There's an excellent article published yesterday on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. This is from Olivia Rondo. And she points out that noncompliance is an American virtue that stretches back to abolitionism and beyond. So here's the good company that you're going to find yourself in if you decide to defy our uh, erstwhile president. In response to the COVID-19 lockdowns and mandates, Olivia writes, the phrase, we will not comply, and sentiments of civil disobedience have become increasingly popular. Parents at school board meetings have been chanting the famous phrase to protest school districts forcing their children to wear masks while attending school this upcoming semester. In Williamson County, Tennessee, parents protested outside their children's school building after the board voted to mandate masks in schools. Senator Rand Paul welcomes the phenomenon, recently writing in a Fox News op-ed, I think the tide has turned and more and more people are willing to stand up. I see stories from across the country of parents standing up to teacher unions and school boards. I see members of Congress refusing to comply with petty tyrant Pelosi. In another notable instance of civil disobedience against COVID-19 mandates, do you recall Tesla's Elon Musk reopening his production plant last year in defiance of the county official who'd ordered that it must remain closed. Musk stated Tesla is restarting production today against Alameda County rules. I will be on the line with everyone else, and he says, if anyone's arrested, I ask that it only be me. Now, the cool thing about that story is when, when Musk said, hey, regardless of what your rules are, we're going to reopen the plant. Very shortly after that, the county, Alameda County, relented. Well, you know, we probably should go ahead and lift this anyways. And So it, it, you don't have to go out there with the pitchforks and torches to make a difference. You just have to be willing to not do as you're told. Olivia Rondo says, some may see that we will not comply movement as a modern trend, but instead, she says, civil disobedience has a rich history in America. As Amy Swearer of the Heritage Foundation points out, that phrase harkens back to the anti-slavery abolitionist movement. 
Swearer wrote in the Argus Observer, noncompliance with federal laws mandating the return of escaped slaves was rampant throughout northern states prior to the Civil War. In 1850, she says, the Vermont legislature went so far as to pass a law effectively requiring state judicial and law enforcement officers to act in direct opposition to the federal fugitive slave law. Noncompliance continued on to become the driving force behind the civil rights movement. Now, some of the most revered figures of the civil rights era were actually brought to the national spotlight by acts of noncompliance. That's according to Hannah Cox of Fee. Rosa Parks refused to comply with a city ordinance mandating segregated buses that would force her to the back of the bus. Hundreds refused to comply with state laws by engaging in sit-ins. Martin Luther King Jr. had several stints in jail for his repeated refusals to comply with court orders. Back when the American colonies were still under British rule, the the colonial response to tyranny was what led to us becoming the independent nation we are today. So practicing freedom of speech and assembly, that was just one of the tamer methods our founding fathers used to achieve liberty from an authoritarian government. Noncompliance is American at its core. And this tradition carries on today in the current battle for less government control over our day-to-day lives. If injustice is part of the necessary friction of the machine of government, let it go, let it go. Perchance it will wear smooth. Certainly the machine will wear out. That's American philosopher Henry David Thoreau writing on the duty of civil disobedience. But he says, if it is of such a nature that it requires you to be the agent of injustice to another, then I say break the law. Let your life be a counter-friction to stop the machine. Thoreau's making the point here that our natural rights are constantly threatened by government overreach. And it's up to us to stand up and protect them. I think the craziest thing that's happening right now around us is it's hard for some people to recognize that uh, that they are in fact in trouble or that their rights are in fact being trampled or abridged or otherwise ignored. And just for the sake of clarification, when I say their rights, I'm talking about those natural rights that limit the power of government over us. That's how you can tell it's really a right. Made up rights like a right to cable television or to satellite TV or to free internet or anything else? No, those are government obligations that force others to work for us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. We are talking about noncompliance. Yes, civil disobedience. It is an American virtue. And as hard as the Biden administration and others are pushing right now for mandatory universal vaccines, among other things, there are a lot of folks, myself included, who are just not going to be going along with that. And by the way, just I'm going to talk about this a little bit later on, uh, but... Just because you are against a vaccine mandate does not mean you are an anti-vaxxer. That's just that's kind of a frustrated cuss word that uh, proponents of, you know, unrighteous dominion are are throwing around out there. You're just an anti-vaxxer like you're you're (laughs) pro-virus. 
And they can try to spin it if they will, but look, the bottom line is uh, no politician, no bureaucrat, no candidate is going to stop this uh, this continued ignoring of limits on government power and, and the robbing of our personal freedoms and choices. So it's up to us. I like this article from Olivia Rondo from the Foundation for Economic Education. She says, not only is it moral to disobey laws that infringe on individual rights, it is morally necessary. Jim Crow segregation ended because people broke the law. Chattel slavery ended because people broke the law. So for modern forms of government tyranny, such as medical mandates, it is clear that the noncompliance is necessary to successfully fight back, despite the dangers that accompany such a response. She says the German-Swiss poet Hermann Hesse once observed that people who refuse to comply with unjust laws are often persecuted, shunned, and hated in their own time. Yet he also noted these same individuals are often the very ones later revered for their courage, sacrifice, and commitment to truth. The society which praises and demands obedience to their arbitrary laws as the highest virtue among the living, Hesse said, that same society adds especially those to their pantheon who bid defiance to these demands and who would rather lose their lives than betray their willfulness. Now, I know this is going to sound absolutely unhinged to some people, but I so agree with that last line there. People who would bid defiance to these demands and would rather lose their lives than betray their willfulness. I mean, I, look, I'm, I'm not looking for an excuse or looking for a hill to die on. But I think it's a very useful exercise for every one of us to ask ourselves, what do I feel strongly about? What, what do I care about strongly enough that I would be willing to lay down my life in defense of that? And I have to admit, personal freedom is one of those things as it pertains to medical decisions or any number of other things. I think we're seeing a lot of stuff happening under the, the guise of, well, now this is a medical necessity. Remember, we got a virus running rampant and there's, there's this pandemic going on and everybody's got to do their part. That sounds like the plea of the tyrant, though, to me. It's an emergency. No time to think. Just obey. But what I see as the long-term, the likely long-term effect of that kind of obedience is an absolute loss of personal autonomy. That is absolutely unacceptable, or at least it should be, for any person who understands what their rights are and who is willing to claim, use, and defend those rights. So I'm not telling you that you're a bad person if you're not willing to stand up but I want to make the case that the people who have chosen to stand up, they're not bad people either. And they're certainly not doing it out of some sense of, I know better than you and I'm going to control you. You're still free to do what you want. If you want to mask up, if you want to get the vaccine, whatever you want to do, yeah, you go ahead and do that. What works for you? But don't force me. Oh, but you might be posing some kind of a threat. Prove it. Come on, we have due process of law for a reason. You think I'm a threat? Prove it. And if you can't, then we're, we're talking about your imagination. We're talking about your fantasy of what might happen. 
And that is a very, very poor way to create policy or to create governance. On the basis of what might happen, we better take away some freedom here just in case, you know, for your protection. All it's going to result in is never-ending emergencies, never-ending crises, which are used to justify further and further expansions of government power. That's how it works. Something you have to be very careful of, too. In fact, I want to point this out. This is just a quick uh, article here from Isaac Morehouse. When definitions change, take heed. Now, Isaac Morehouse says, I used to wonder why George Orwell was so obsessed with language. He says, I would discuss this with a good friend who shared the concern for preserving the meaning of words. Definitions change. Meanings change. New words emerge to take the place of the old. So what? But Isaac Morehouse says, I think I get it now. It's not that definitions shouldn't change or that we should pass laws to try to force people to keep a language pure. It's more about how they change. He says there's an organic process of linguistic evolution taking place all the time. Then there are sudden changes pushed in concert by people with agendas. Now, that's not inherently bad, but it is something to pay close attention to. Because he says to work, it must either be organic or pushed by a large and influential chunk of the literati. The former provides interesting insight about cultural norms and beliefs, the latter about powerful interests. So he says when powerful interests suddenly and successfully redefine common words without any change in the facts that would warrant it, rest assured it's not a coincidence or for convenience. It's to change your mind. It's to gain control over the bounds of acceptable thought, not just speech. That's something that Orwell understood. In the last year, a number of common definitions have changed overnight. In fact, you can see the before and after shots in popular dictionaries. We're talking words like immunity, vaccination, case, and infected. They've been redefined sometimes in ways logically contradictory to the previous definition. And Isaac Morehouse points out no mention has been made of new studies or information that revealed the old definition to be wrong or the new one right. They were not changed with the intention to better reflect the facts, but with intention to disallow certain thoughts perceived by those making the changes to be a threat to their political agenda. Now, he says such changes are a warning flare. It means people are being corralled and controlled far beyond what they realize. Shifting the bounds of allowable thought is the necessary groundwork for turning people into serfs or slaves. So pay attention. That is so spot on. I have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I also want to just take a moment here and urge you to uh, perhaps subscribe to everythingvoluntary.com. It actually spells out everything-voluntary.com. I get to emails from them several times a week. Lots of different con- contributors. They're all very insightful, very direct. And I like that because I feel like I live in a time where uh, there are changes taking place. There, there's a huge shift in the boundaries of what's allowed and what isn't. And yes, words and definitions are being shifted around like the shell game. Well, that doesn't mean what you think it means. So when we say vaccination, you know, it used to be, you know, to help provide immunity against a particular disease. Now, the definition, I believe this is according to the World Health Organization, is just simply, no, it's just to provide protection. Gee, you don't, you know, that came about pretty recently, too. You don't suppose that has anything to do with the fact that the uh, COVID vaccine 
appears to be a lot less effective at providing immunity than originally thought. Just wondering aloud here, but uh, yeah. When someone, when someone tries to disallow thoughts, ideas, words, or phrases that they think would pose a threat to their agenda, we're in pretty dangerous territory. Of course, you probably already knew that. It's just getting a little bit trickier by the day. All right, we've got to take a quick break. I've got lots of good news. And some really interesting stuff about Clint Eastwood, just for a little something different. That is coming up. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Just a quick shout-out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They are located in St. George at 619 South Bluff Street. If you are looking for a home actually anywhere in the state of Utah, it would be worth your time to contact Heather Turner's team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You can call 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I know you don't uh, you don't really like to accept labels, right? Do you? I mean, do you like to be labeled reactionary, anti-vaxer? That's a, that's kind of a popular one. And the folks in authority, look, they're pushing very hard to consolidate control over as many people as possible. And labels, believe it or not, play into what is being done found a great commentary from Ken McManigal that I thought uh, was worth sharing, just because this is something you're very likely to encounter. And so you could consider this, if you would, a little intellectual ammunition to sock away in case you need it. Not anti-vaccine, but anti-mandate. And it's important that we, we make this clear. Kent McManigal says, I am not anti-vaccine. I've been vaccinated for a few things in my adult life because I think the risk of those vaccines is less than the risk or inconvenience of the diseases they're supposed to prevent. He says, I wouldn't bother getting a quasi-vaccine that neither prevents the vaccinated from getting nor spreading a disease that I'm not particularly worried about. A sort of vaccine that doesn't even last a few years to moderate a new, slightly more dangerous cold virus. A cold virus which, like all other cold viruses, will never go away. So he says it would be dishonest to call me an anti-vaxxer because I'm not one. He says, I think some vaccines are very useful and are a great benefit, just not this one for COVID-19. Now, if you want the vaccine because your opinion of the relative risks differs from mine, then he says, I want you to get it. If you get the vaccine, I hope it works or at least makes you feel safer, whatever you want it to do. He says, new data might change my mind and make me decide I want one of those vaccines too if the data comes from a source I trust, a source more credible and trustworthy than those currently counting the numbers of deaths and cases. But he also notes government is not such a source. Why would anyone assume the numbers reported by government agencies and other politicized entities are even close to true? It's an unsupported assumption. And he says, I don't trust anyone connected to politics. I oppose using government power and threats of violence to force others to get vaccinated or to wear masks. 
And he says, I also oppose using government power to forbid vaccinations and masks for those who voluntarily choose them and bear the full costs themselves. Crazy stuff, huh? He says, I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm anti-mandate. In this case, I see no difference between bullies, governments, or corporations. No government or corporation has any right to do anything since rights are individual, not collective. That means a collective can't have the right to violate individuals' rights. Yes, private business owners have the right to require masks in their business. I also have the right to refuse to trade with those business owners. He says, I oppose anyone who helps government create vaccine passports of any sort. I oppose those who advocate for social division based on vaccination status. And even if I later decide to take the vaccination, I will always oppose papers, please, and any other authoritarian interference in life. Pretty crazy stuff, huh? Now, I want to shift from that to likely reactions of uh, how, how we might respond to uh, President Biden's mandates and, you know, this top-down approach to try to get everybody to do what, uh, what we're being told to do. Because this raises a question of, you know, are, are you living your life in fear? Look, I try very hard not to, to let fear dictate how I'm going to live my life, but the amount of fear that's in my life almost always is related directly to how much media I'm consuming. And believe it or not, this weighs pretty heavily on my mind just because, you know, part of what I'm doing is as I'm sharing this information with you, it's very likely in some people that what I'm doing is actually inspiring some fear. And I hope that's not the case, but I this this isn't easy stuff. These are not light, fluffy topics that, that make people happy. It's not like, oh, look, more more puppies, everybody, everybody. Look, aren't they cute? I mean, this is serious stuff. And it has serious implications, not just for the here and now, but for for generations to come. The world my grandkids will be growing up in. So this matters. But when it comes to fear, I think most of us have probably seen the the piece from uh, C.S. Lewis, Living in the Atomic Age. And, you know, how should, if the atomic bomb should fall, how should it find us? And his response was it should find us living as normal and noble a life as possible, doing the things that normal people do rather than cowering in some corner like a bunch of sheep. There's an excellent commentary from Andrew Coy. This is on AmericanThinker.com. And it's also titled, Let It Find Us. If you're struggling with fear, and I think all of us are at some point, I hope you find this as helpful as I did. Andrew Coy says, It is becoming so painfully clear that those in charge of our lives either do not know what they're doing or are lying to us when it comes to COVID. There's really no question that those in authority are just lying to us or simply guessing when it comes to masking, social distancing, the vaccine, and the variances to come. It is scary, almost dystopian, that we have allowed Those we have allowed to have authority over our health lives have been so wrong or so dishonest when it comes to the effectiveness of the vaccine. Big tech, along with major corporate companies, have aligned with Biden, Fauci, the CDC, and the deep state in acting as if they know. But in reality, they are very wrong or very untruthful when it comes to the China virus. They won't even admit that it probably came from China. Wonder why? So Coy says whether we are being 
lied to, or those in power are inept, Americans are increasingly filled with COVID dread. Come on, we have first first graders wearing masks, motorcycle riders without helmets, but wearing masks. When people driving by themselves in a car are wearing a mask, when family members refuse to invite other family members to family picnics because of vaccination demands, we're not living right. When major insurance companies or major companies demand higher premiums for their employees for health insurance because they have refused a questionable vaccine, this is not who America is or what it stands for. Now, Andrew Coy says, look, concerns are legitimate, but we must stop living in fear. Being careful is appropriate, but we should no longer allow this virus to determine our every move or dominate our thoughts. We must claim our lives back. Now, he cites the C.S. Lewis piece here, the one that uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about living our lives in 1948. Though Lewis was writing about the atomic bomb age in London, the events and fears are similar. Lewis encouraged the British to live their lives fully, even under the threat of nuclear annihilation. And Andrew Coy is saying we in America must do the same today with regard to the virus. He says, let it find us. If the virus finds us, let it find us living our lives. Let it find us raising our children. Let it find us working harder and play, working hard rather and playing harder. Let it find us living and not cowering. Let it find us shouting from the rooftops, not cowering in the corner. Let it find us at a fully attended family reunion. Let it find us drinking a beer with an old army buddy. Let the virus find us swapping tall tales with old high school friends. Let it find us on the front porch, not in the basement. Let it find us on the tractor, keeping the rows straight, or clearing out the beaver dam so the crops don't flood. Let it find us cleaning the stables. If the virus is to find us, he says, let it find us being Americans and not trolls of a dystopian authoritative regime. Let it find us singing in the church choir, going to Sunday school, or sitting in our normal pew at church. Let it find us at the kids' ball games, attending the school spelling bee, at cheerleading practice, filling up the tank with gas, or having the children, the grandchildren spending the night. Let it find us. He says, if the virus is to find us, let it find us at the beach, hiking the trails, or at the local sports bar, watching the game. Let it find us listening to Barry White, Chopin, the Eagles, or the Doobie Brothers. If the virus is to find it, is to find us, rather, let it find us riding our bikes, taking long walks, swimming in the pool, and shooting the hoops at the gym. Let it find us reading Chaucer, Booker T, Solzhenitsyn, or the King James Version. Let it find us under the Friday night lights at the local high school stadium. Let it find us reading Proverbs, Psalms, and Revelation. Let it find us reading 1984, Animal Farm, and that hideous strength. Let it find us volunteering at Hope Hospice, at the soup kitchens. Yeah, teaching four-year-olds in church even. Let it find us mowing the yard, cleaning the garage, or simply laying out and getting some sun. Do you see the point he's making here? I'm going to come back to this in just a few moments, but uh, don't stop living your life because you're so afraid of what could be a deadly virus for some finding its way into your life. It's a virus. It's going to do what viruses do. Protect yourself as you can, but live your life. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I've been sharing this excellent article from Andrew Coy, Let It Find Us. This is from AmericanThinker.com. And yeah, he's talking about the virus. Talking about instead of instead of us all being, you know, already laying down in a hospital bed with an IV hooked up to our arms. Yes, just in case, just in case I ever get it. No, let's let's live our lives. And that doesn't mean that we have to live recklessly. But let's continue living. This is what we've done with every other pandemic that has come through. And you know what? We survived. Some have been worse than others. This, uh, you know, the, I just want to remind you the survival rate for this particular virus still 99.7%. That's for people who get it. It's the very old, the people who have existing health concerns. Those are the ones who have to watch out for it. We don't put them at risk recklessly, but neither should the rest of us, you know, put our lives on hold and start living and acting like invalids out of fear that we might get it. I want to come back to Andrew Coy's article here. He says, if the virus is to find us, let it find us getting stronger, not becoming weaker. Let it find us moving forward in anticipation, not looking backwards in despair. Let it find us holding the rogues and government accountable, not simply taking the jab because they demanded it. Let it find us during the season hunting in the woods or at our favorite fishing hole with the kids. Let it find us living to the fullest, not shrinking our expectations. Let it find us at a school board meeting or in front of the White House, demanding truthful answers. Let it find us on a Saturday afternoon in between the third and fourth quarters with 90,000 faithful fans singing Sweet Caroline. Let it find us caring for each other more and not so fearful of a hug or a handshake. Let it find us teaching the students, washing the cars, driving the school bus. Let it find us with Play-Doh, glitter, and Elmer's glue. Let it find us doing and not waiting. Let it find us praising God and swearing at the devil. It's not Lewis's atomic bomb age, but our COVID age. If the virus is to find us, let it find us doing things that are noble and things that lift us up rather than things that are destructive. Let it find us living the American dream and not whimpering in the authoritarian corner. There are real health concerns and justifiable reasons to be wary and cautious, says Andrew Coy. And those in positions of power have let us down in a big way, possibly criminal ways. But if the virus is to find us, let it find us living our lives to the fullest, not preparing for death. He says, I think C.S. Lewis and FDR and Billy Graham and Reagan and Chuck Colson and Churchill and Bonhoeffer would all agree. Interesting thought. By the way, our program brought to you in part by LifesavingFoods.com. I'm just going to throw this out there because I have thoughtfully included a link in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Click on that link. Go through their catalog of products, their different food storage packages, the different, uh, I mean, they have individual things that you could use just to round out an already existing food storage program. Here's the bottom line, though. If you want to save 10% off your purchase, all you have to do when you get to check out is put in the coupon code H-Y-D-E. That's my last name, Hyde. It'll save you 10%. And I'll thank you for doing business with one of my great sponsors. So here's something a little bit different. I hope you find this uh, interesting. Clint Eastwood has been uh, making movies 
for seven, I guess his, his career spans seven decades now. That's incredible. And he's back on the screen in a movie called Cry Macho, which is remarkable when you consider that uh, his legendary career began with films that should not have worked at all. Now, this is from uh, pjmedia.com. Brian Preston is the author. And I won't share the whole thing with you, but I'll give you a couple of the highlights here. Um, Listen to this plot line. A lone wanderer with hard-won fighting skills drifts into a town. There he finds two factions factions vying for power and devises a way to play one off of the other while keeping his own skin intact through his wits and his otherworldly prowess with weapons, but few words. Lots of stares and squints, more than a few bullets flying, but very, very few words. I know, I did. didn't you just describe most every Clint Eastwood movie? Well, if that plot sounds familiar, it's because it powers three titanic tent poles in pop culture spanning the last 60 years, right up to the present. It also launched one of the most iconic careers in film. This, uh, this particular plot line first turned up in Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo, made in 1961. Sergio Leone melted it down from Kurosawa and turned the lone samurai into the man with no name who's neither a vintage cowboy nor a classic Western lawman, played by a young TV star named Clint Eastwood. A fistful of dollars in 1964 should not have worked, not with that budget, about $200,000, not with a TV actor that Hollywood didn't want, Eastwood, and not by moving the Western epic, popularized by the likes of Roy Rogers and John Wayne, out of the United States. You realize the uh, spaghetti Westerns were, were filmed in Italy and Spain? where local crews argued over who was paying for what, and local actors played townspeople and villains without speaking a word of English. And the two actors American audiences would have most recognized, young Eastwood and veteran actor Lee Van Cleef, spoke among the fewest lines of any major movie duo. And then to top all of that off, Ennio Morricone came up with a spare, flickery, twangy theme that resembled very little of the music that powered the Western genre to date. It sounded more like medieval Japanese with Spanish and Italian notes than any of the grand sweeping epic themes that John Ford or John Wayne used. Now you can also see this in some other areas, and this article points out the Lone Wanderer storyline is very prevalent in The Mandalorian, which knowingly takes more than just that story from Kurosawa, Leon, and Eastwood. It actually borrows sonic notes from Morricone and the spare-speaking hero from Fistful and its sequels for a few dollars more and the good, the bad, and the ugly. In fact, the Mandalorian's nickname, Mando, even sounds like Manco, which was the man with no name's stated name in the movie for a few dollars more. And just a little bit of interesting trivia in case you're ever, uh, you know, on Jeopardy or something. The man with no name actually had three names. In Fistful of Dollars, it was Joe, Manco in For a Few Dollars More, and Blondie in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. That latter name makes no sense given the fact that Eastwood had brown hair. None of it should have worked. There is no magic movie formula that says it will. Eastwood wasn't a proven bankable talent. The budget for his films was so small that he brought his own wardrobe from the TV show he'd been playing on, which was Rawhide. That's where his boots came from. He bought the jeans and the hat. The blanket he wore, he seems to have picked up in Spain. Eastwood had one hat on the set of Fistful, which he bought and brought himself. He told an interviewer years later, if I'd have lost that hat, I was a goner. The director lacked a track record. 
He'd been fired after just one day on a previous film in 1962. Morricone's soundtrack is haunting, but it was also a major risk at the time. Who uses a whistler as the key motif for the soundtrack of a dark, violent western? And of course, they shot the films in Europe, despite the western being the most iconic American film genre of the time. But they did it because uh, European crews and actors were cheaper than their American counterparts. The heroless storylines in the Eastwood Leone trilogy turned the Western epic on its head. Eastwood didn't speak Italian. Leone didn't speak English. Audiences had numerous reasons to reject the films. They also had big, successful Westerns fresh in their mind. I mean, John Wayne had just spent millions shooting his Alamo epic in Texas just a few years earlier. Leone spent a lot less filming all three of his films, including the epic Civil War battle scene in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. But sometimes, this article says, alchemy does produce gold. Fistful of Dollars was an instant hit and an instant classic. Eastwood's understated, grim, squint-eyed performance transformed him into an international star. He could say more with a look, a flick of his hand to his sidearm, and a chomp on his cigar than most actors could say with a page of dialogue. He always seems on the edge, thinking, determining the sequence in which he will shoot the opponents he faces. He's not a hero. If anything, he's a lone schemer trying to survive, who does happen to do the right thing when he has to. Leon kept the dialogue spare, so uh, not because he knew the talent uh, he had in Eastwood or how he'd necessarily build the scene in editing. He kept the dialogue very spare because he was trying to cut costs. And yet when he does talk in these movies, Eastwood has a way of turning the sometimes silly dialogue into serious, deadly threats. So the bottom line here is the Spaghetti Western made Clint Eastwood an icon in the making. It changed movie making. The film's loose plots, tight situations, violent gunfights, lack of archetypical hero figures and weather-beaten sets and second actors and extras made the world that they created look real and lived in. Nothing in the Man With No Name trilogy looks fake. And other filmmakers would later take cues from the mixture that Leone conjured up. So I don't know if you're going to have time, but uh, maybe this weekend, dust off one of those old Clint Eastwood films, and who knows, you might appreciate it on a whole new level. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Our program is brought to you each day by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. By the way, if you check out the uh, sponsor links, which I include in the show notes each day, you'll find them at TheBrianHydeShow.com. Click on the one marked uh, LifesavingFoods.com and uh, just take a quick look at some of the different food storage packages they have. Now, look, you I'm guessing if you're listening to this program, you probably already have some kind of a head start. Maybe you have a very robust food storage program. 
Okay, and that's a good thing. For some people, though, it's it's an almost overwhelming thought. The thought of uh, how do I put away? And I know in, in kind of the common culture, at least here in the Intermountain West, is well, you got to have a year's supply of food. That's that's what food storage is. At least a year's supply. That seems daunting. But whether you need a year's supply for yourself or four or five or six people or whether you're just looking to fill in some gaps in an existing program, lifesavingfoods.com has the excellent ReadyWise food storage, 25-year shelf life. Just add water. Very, very simple. And if you mention my name at checkout, the coupon code HYDE, you'll save 10% off your purchase. That's a pretty good deal. So let's, uh, let's jump right in. A couple of different uh, things that I want to share with you. And, you know, I want to start with uh, the, the news that isn't being talked about. Of course, you know, the press is all talking about, oh, well, Biden has a six-prong plan for more COVID vaccine mandates. A hundred million people could be, af- could be affected, you know, by, by these mandates that the, the president was talking about yesterday. And that's big news in, in some senses. But you know what I'm not hearing much about? In fact, there's, there's been a very conspicuous uh, silence about a story that broke earlier this week when a Freedom of Information Act request by, I believe it was The Intercept, brought out the reality that, yes, gain-of-function research was, in fact, being funded by the U.S. government, in part, in the Wuhan lab. Why is that important? Well, I'm looking at an article right now. This is from the freethoughtproject.com. And it says, when Dr. Anthony Fauci confidently screamed at Senator Rand Paul in July, calling him a liar for accusing him of funding so-called gain-of-function research in Wuhan, China, to make coronaviruses more transmissible to humans, (coughs) excuse me, the argument ultimately faded due to Fauci's unsupported claim that the research didn't technically fit the definition of of gain-of-function. Now, thanks to materials, and by the way, they are linked in the article, so you can See these for yourself. Information uh, that was released through a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit by The Intercept against the National Institutes of Health, which were unredacted enough to toss Fauci under the bus. We now know that Fauci funded EcoHealth Alliance. That's a New York-based nonprofit headed by Peter Daszak. And they were absolutely engaged in gain-of-function research to make chimeric SARS-based coronaviruses, which they confirmed could infect human cells. Now, while evidence of this research has been pointed to in published studies, the Freedom of Information Act release provides a key piece to the puzzle which sheds new light on what was going on. Gary Ruskin, who's the executive director of the U.S. Right to Know, a group that's been investigating the origins of COVID-19, says this is a roadmap to the high-risk research that could have led to the current pandemic. And as Rutgers University Board of Governors chemistry professor Richard E. Albright notes, Ebright rather, notes, the documents make it clear that assertions by the NIH director, Francis Collins, and NIAID director, Anthony Fauci, that the NIH or National Institute of Health did not support gain-of-function research or potential pandemic pathogen enhancement at the Wuhan labs are untruthful. I mean, do you remember when Fauci lied to Congress? When he denied funding gain-of-function research? Yeah, he was splitting words. He was, he was parsing words like Bill Clinton would. If anyone is lying here, Senator, it is you. 
Dr. Fauci speaking to Senator Rand Paul back in July. Now we have newly released documents providing details of U.S.-funded research on coronaviruses at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. In fact, the, inst- the Intercept, rather, under that Freedom of Information Act, obtained more than 900 pages of documents detailing work of the EcoHealth Alliance at the Chinese lab. And the trove of documents includes two previously unpublished grant proposals that were funded by the NIAID, that's uh, Fauci's organization, as well as project updates relating to the EcoHealth Alliance's research, which has been scrutinized amid increased interest in the origins of the pandemic. Isn't that interesting? The materials show the 2014 and 2019 NIH grants to EcoHealth with subcontracts to the Wuhan uh, uh, Virology Lab, or Institute of Virology, funded gain-of-function research as defined in federal policies in effect in in 2014 through 2017, and potential pandemic pathogen enhancement as defined in federal policies in effect 2017 to present. Now, this had been evident previously from published research records or papers that credited the 2014 grant and the publicly available summary of the 2019 grant. But this can now be stated definitively from progress reports of the 2014 grant and the full proposal of the 2017 grant. Now, it gets pretty technical from here. So I'm not going to share all of the, you know, the AC2 or DPP4 receptors and stuff. That's, uh, that's something I'll let you sort out on your own. But the bottom line is these materials reveal that the resulting novel laboratory-generated SARS-related coronaviruses also could infect mice engineered to display human receptors on cells. And these materials reveal for the first time that one of the resulting novel laboratory-generated SARS-related coronaviruses, one that had not been previously disclosed publicly, was more pathogenic to humanized mice than the starting virus from which it was constructed. And thus was not only reasonably anticipated to exhibit enhanced pathogenicity, but indeed was demonstrated to exhibit enhanced pathogenicity. The materials also reveal the grants that supported, also supported construction in Wuhan of a novel chimeric MERS-related coronavirus that combines spike genes from one MERS-related coronavirus with genetic information from another MERS-related coronavirus. I don't know if you have a little alarm bell going off in the back of your head, but you should. Why were they doing this? Why were they trying to see if it could be made more infectious, more transmittable? I don't know. But it seems pretty clear that uh, that it was definitely underway. The documents in this article say uh, make it make it clear that assertions by National Institutes of Health Director Francis Collins and the NIAID Director Anthony Fauci claims that the NIH did not support gain-of-function research or potential pandemic pathogen enhancement at the Wuhan Institute of Virology are untruthful. Now, that raises an interesting question. So what's going to happen to Fauci? To Fauci, rather. What's, what will happen to him? Lying to Congress? Possibly setting in motion the pandemic? I mean, we don't know how this virus was leaked. 
I know. I'm having that same really uncomfortable thought of, well, what, wait a minute. If this was a created Franken virus, then it kind of, uh, it kind of calls into question a lot of these official policies of how we've got to get control of it. And uh, the president's talking about, yeah, we're going to, we're going to do whatever it takes to get this thing under control. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry for how conspiratorial this sounds, but if, if, if factions of the U.S. government were, actually, were actively funding and promoting research to make such a virus and make it more infectious, more transmissible than, than before, gee, I don't know. Would, would, anybody ever, would it ever occur to them that maybe we could do this in such a way that, you know, we could turn it to our advantage? Maybe this would be very profitable for, oh, I don't know, companies that to create the vaccines. Maybe the vaccines are something that people would need multiple times a year. Seems like it could be a good moneymaker, you know, if it was administered properly. And just a little bit of fear to kind of push people in the direction that they need to go. Please understand, I don't want to believe that either. And I'm not stating it as, oh, yeah, that's absolutely the case. I'm just saying that something as unthinkable as that suddenly looks a lot more plausible thanks to this Freedom of Information Act uh, request being fulfilled and the information that was gleaned. Check it out. There's a link in the show notes. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, if you've listened to me for any length of time, you know that Paul Rosenberg is one of my one of my favorite thinkers. I don't know a great deal about this guy's background, but I know that he has some pretty good experience in how the world works. There's clarity in his writing. And I, there's a gentleness to the way he approaches things, too, that I, I really appreciate. Very, very persuasive. He's not bombastic. He doesn't rely on the, you will believe me because I have spoken and that's the way it is. He really gives you the room to make up your own mind. And I guess it's that that persuasiveness and and even that willingness to, to take a softer approach rather than report it in the worst possible light. You know, he'll give people the benefit, for the doubt, benefit of the doubt, rather. Now, having said that, I had an email land in my inbox yesterday that, uh, when I read it, left me feeling just a little bit shaken. And in the last segment, I talk about how I don't want to believe that people who are directly tied to my government could have a part in the creation of the virus that right now is causing so much disruption and is creating the pretext by which those in authority at every level are consolidating their power and their control of the populace. But it's sure looking likely. Paul Rosenberg's latest article is COVID is a Franken virus and it's not going away. This is the most direct thing I've ever seen him write. And I don't think it's because he's left the reservation. He's he's tipped off the edge. I do believe he's just telling it straight. But if what he's saying here is true. We all have some decisions to make. And I'm not suggesting that they're going to be easy decisions. 
Paul Rosenberg says, it's now clear that COVID-19 was created by scientists on purpose. If you have any doubts, please, you know, he has links to the Intercept article and, and another article as well. This is in the Epic Times. He says, we had a paper trail months ago and we now have a paved paper trail And what remains in doubt is our ability to deal with such facts. I did mention to you, I'm struggling with this too. I don't want to believe it. But the facts seem to be pointing in the direction that that Rosenberg is describing here. So the Dr. Frankensteins of this drama, he says, were Tony Fauci, who wrote checks for gain-of-function research and who received detailed reports of how well it was working in humanized mice and who publicly lied about it ever since. Also, Peter Daszak, for more or less the same reasons, the National Institutes of Health, which was deeply involved all through, the U.S. government, who provided and oversaw the funding, the Chinese government, who provided their own oversight and funding, as well as crucial materials and scientists. Now, Paul Rosenberg says there were likely others There were more than likely others, but this much seems clear. And he says, yes, I think COVID is fairly described as a Franken virus. In fact, that's more or less the only honest way to describe it. It was purposely created and purposely created to be dangerous. If so, every person who has been killed, sickened or inconvenienced by this virus is a victim of regulatory, scientific and bureaucratic malfeasance running far beyond the wreckage of the fictional Dr. Frankenstein. Now, what remains for us is to accept and deal with the facts or to fail at doing so. So bear in mind, please, he says that accepting this will be difficult for people. They'll seek slogans and narratives that spare them from having to see it. This is because the paper trail indicates that Fauci, among others, caused massive suffering. Whether it was driven by malice or hubris is an open issue. How it leaked from the lab is yet another question. And he says, I don't think we have enough information to answer it, if it's answerable at this point. But here's the takeaway. COVID is not going away. Between January and March of this year, the U.S. Department of Agriculture tested 385 blood samples from deer in four U.S. states. Michigan, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and New York. 40% of these deer carried SARS-CoV-2 antibodies, meaning they were infected at some point, and none of the deer showed signs of illness. Furthermore, it's been well established that coronaviruses jump between species. Now, the fact being that humans and deer live in widely overlapping habitats, a permanent pool of the virus is clearly in place and would remain in place even if COVID vaccines worked as advertised. Remember, it doesn't seem to kill the deer, meaning that it can spread perpetually. So with something like 98% certainty, COVID is here to stay. Now we can either treat it like a flu or we can panic into oblivion. But it leaves us with this huge lingering question. Okay, so what now? What happens next is fundamentally up to us, all of us. If we stay plugged into the televised social media matrix... What happened following the Tuskegee experiment will happen here. Officialdom in the media universe will close ranks and will protect their own, meaning Fauci will skate. 
And Paul Rosenberg says, please remember, after keeping 399 poor black men sick with syphilis for 30 years after a cheap cure was found, no one went to jail, no one was prosecuted, and no one lost their job. More than that, the most respected medical organizations in the U.S. were involved, including the CDC, the AMA, and the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. All of them retained their authority. So that's the model for COVID. Now, he says you can draw your own conclusions, but I'm pretty well convinced that almost every government entity, including states and every media operation, has protected the guilty for, for almost two years. And if they didn't know what they were doing, well, then they're guilty of acting as craven sycophants. These outfits misdirected the public's focus and especially misdirected their passions, doing everything they could to make us fight among ourselves rather than focus on the crime at hand. Now, interestingly, he says, bear in mind, please, I'm not particularly interested in justice for this, as vile as it was. He says, I'm rather interested in truth. And the truth of COVID-19's creation is clear. It is a Franken-virus, purposely created. Either that, or we claim that it appeared in precisely the same place and time among all places and times by accident. He says, we have multiple paper trails, we know who the players were, and of course we have a clear view of how much death and mayhem they caused. So the question of what to do about this is an important one for us. We can either turn into a lynch mob or... We can condemn and reject the system that gave it to us, tossing it into the dustbin of history. And Paul Rosenberg says, I would prefer the latter. Justice is something of a human necessity, but he says going forward in a situation like this, it's dangerous. Hate and revenge warp our characters and disrupt our personal lives. Now he does say, if I owned a restaurant and Tony Fauci walked in, I'd shove him back out the door and hopefully restrain myself from doing much more. And the same goes for his partners. Paul Rosenberg says, and while I won't join a mob, I will remind people that every organization involved, causing it, covering it up, or both, should be condemned and rejected, permanently rejected. So let's put the fine point on this. Paul Rosenberg says the human race was just savaged by a man-made monster. Now we'll have to deal with it. And he says, you have my condolences. Yeah, it makes me uncomfortable too. This is, this is one of the downsides of being a truth seeker is sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, truth will take you into places that are really uncomfortable. This is one of the most uncomfortable in which I found myself. But it, the question remains, what do we do about it? And I know there are some guys, you know, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. They're ready, you know, ramming speed. They are, they're ready to go on the attack. I don't know if that's a wise choice or not. I do know this. I have the power to resist those who would try to force their solutions on us. And at the individual level, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And I pray that my example will lend courage to others who are inclined to do likewise. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program brought to you in part by Patriot Home Mortgage. 
specifically the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. If you or someone you love is looking to purchase a home anywhere in the state of Utah, it'd be well worth your while to talk to Heather and her team. From VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage brings to the table the stability, the clout, and decades of experience to help you get the loan you need without delay. Why is that important? Well, because homes don't stick around on the market. You find one you want, you've got to have your financing in order. Contact the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage by calling 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. And yes, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. I was really hoping I would have a lot lighter happier topics to to share with you as we head off into the weekend, but there's a lot of truth to be spoken today, and unfortunately some of this is pretty hard. So, you know, my condolences if if this is adding to your to your burdens. I have talked to more people in the last two weeks who have confessed they're struggling. Whether it's depression, whether it's just discouragement or just that sense that, you know, things things are are feeling very hopeless. And you're not alone. I, I struggle with this too. And just please understand my goal here is not to to bring everybody in. Come suffer with us. Come, you know. But unfortunately, we are in a period of time where there are hard facts that absolutely have to be faced. I'm trying to deliver those facts, or at least as best I understand them, I'm trying to deliver the truth in a way that that doesn't try to minimize or excuse away things that should be addressed, but at the same time doesn't paralyze us with fear. I mean, don't feel sorry for me, but it's it's not a very easy job. And if you do find that it's getting to be a little bit much, I think the, the smartest thing you can do is unplug. Walk away from the media, put your phone and your electronic devices down for a little bit, and go somewhere quiet. I think it's a wise way to, to, to approach this. One thing is very clear, especially with the president's speech yesterday, the unvaccinated have been declared fair game for the political class and their corporate enables, enablers rather to demonize. And that means we are going to see an, an expansion as well as the ongoing creation of a kind of COVID apartheid. Rick Fuentes, writing for AmericanThinker.com, says even before his radical demands Thursday for vaccination of federal employees and those of federal contractors and large companies, President Biden was seeking to demoralize or demonize, rather, the unvaccinated. Now, when it comes to the pandemic, do you realize only half of Americans are fully vaccinated? Choosing the stick over the carrot, the Biden administration has encouraged state government leaders and CEOs to sew a scarlet letter on the unvaxxed and cast them out from their social lives and sources of income. Government-sanctioned segregation appears to be making a comeback. That's funny, too, because there are people just still celebrating, well, at least that uh, Robert E. Lee monument came down in Richmond, Virginia. Why, it was nothing more than a nod to the days of Jim Crow. Yeah, even though it was uh, put in place in, what, the 1880s? Yeah, that's quite a, quite a nod there. Yet these are the same people, generally, who would support this new kind of apartheid. I guess they feel like they're members of the club, and membership has its privileges. 
erstwhile government uh, emirata, emirata like uh, CIA, Obama CIA Director Mike, uh, General Michael Hayden, gleefully caught up in a Twitter rant, agreed that the unvaccinated are Trump supporters who should be flown to Afghanistan and dropped amidst the Taliban. Nice. By missing any uh, by missing recent polls showing that the largest percentage of unvaxxed without within any racial group are blacks, Hayden shows an ignorance beyond expectation for a Trump bashing cocktail party general. Now, as of mid-August, almost half of New York City's nine million residents remain unvaccinated. Even two weeks after its Bolshevist mayor shut the doors to theaters, restaurants, bars and gyms for anyone lacking proof of a first shot or negative test result. The Bronx bombers have herded them into special no-vax sections of Yankee Stadium, with similar seclusions at home games of the Mets, the Knicks, and the Nets. Lifelong fans and season ticket holders find themselves ejected from their baseline seats and into boxed-in areas enforced with a minimum socially distanced capacity. Uppity East Side restaurateurs are pressed into the role of brown shirts serving hot cuisine, showing or demanding that uh, masks and turning away those who can't produce papers. No shot, no proof, no service is now one of those hip idioms that epitomizes the weaponization of the private sector to achieve government goals in Democrat-run urban strongholds. Now, de Blasio, who plies politics as if uh, Gracie Mansion overlooked the uh, Bahia de Habana, is apparently unconcerned that his social pogrom against those lax about the vax is racially discriminated on its face. Realize only 28% of black males ages 18 to 44 across the five bureaus are inoculated. An age group that comprises nearly one-third of all city workers who, if they persist into mid-September, are at risk of losing their means. Now, that's a non-sequitur to the mayor, as most Democrats in his line of work are authoritarians by way of a majority black vote without lifting a finger to earn it. And one week after Hisner lowered the boom on Gotham businesses, Orleans Mayor, uh, Democrat Mayor Latoya Cantrell, so replicated, abruptly curtailing the indoor activities of the unvaccinated and threatening to fire them from their city jobs before Labor Day. The Crescent City was already under a pandemic state of emergency, with Louisiana's Disaster Act empowering Cantrell to swear out other executive orders including one imputing the authority to ban the sale and transportation of firearms, a prospective flag for citywide gun control and confiscation, curiously out of place in a health crisis and normally reserved for times of civil unrest. Unless, of course, they're pushing for civil unrest, which I think someone could actually credibly make the case that, you know, the, the counterpunch is ready, the headlines are already, you know, minted up and ready to go. They just need someone to, to react. And if I can throw a little conspiracy spin on it just for fun, uh, the fact the president would make this speech two days prior to the 20th anniversary of 9-11, it's a fine season for a false flag. I'm just saying. Something big could be the catalyst to, to bringing the whole apparatus into police state mode and really cracking down. But they would never do that, right? Okay, got to remember to archive this show just in case we need to go back to the tape at some point. Nine of ten residents in New Orleans' three most affluent and majority white neighborhoods are also in, are inoculated, but not so for Cantrell's black constituency, 
who outnumber whites two to one in the surrounding city parishes, but are vaccinated at just 45% of their representative population. San Francisco, the flagship of American progressivism, has some of the highest vax rates, with nearly 80% spurred on by the city's dutiful Asian population. Nonetheless, on August 19th, Mayor London Breed ordered all locals to show proof of a fully completed vaccine regimen if they wish to dine out, work out, or trip the nightlife. Negative test results or a first shot won't get you foie gras pâté in the same city by the bay that endorses shoplifting, pays criminals not to commit gun crimes, and turns a blind eye to the serial COVID violations of Nancy Pelosi. It also encourages rampant homelessness in tent cities where COVID variants flourish by way of low vaccine rates, lack of hygiene, and social proximity. Breed's lockout policies will disproportionately impact black adults who make up only 5% of the populace, but more than 15% of city employees. In the majority black Fillmore District and other low-income neighborhoods, vaccination rates are still underwater despite pop-up vac sites and offers of free food and entertainment tickets. Is it any wonder that a whole racial class of Americans who have in the past two centuries suffered grave indecencies at the hands of medical researchers should not willfully and in mass extend an arm for the largest medical experiment in human history. Now, vaccines are effective, even amidst doubts of their efficacy in the long term. But suspicions within the black community, based upon previous government exploitations, exert their own pressures on personal decision-making. Joe Biden and his erratic medical team are presented with two remedies. Stop the missed messages from Anthony Fauci, the CDC, and the FDA that stoke up apprehension and uncertainty in minority communities, or continue to pursue the path that they're on by whipping up interracial division, by suffering the unvaxxed their freedoms, denying them the creature comforts of American life, and finding ways to turn the inoculated majority against them. Yikes. Going to come back to this article in just a few moments, but uh, yeah, if you want to read it for yourself, check out the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Like I say, we've got some decisions to make. We'll talk about those coming up in the next segment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And welcome back. Headed into our final segment today. And I'm sharing with you an article from Rick Fuentes about our emerging COVID apartheid. And, you know, some people take offense. Well, now, apartheid was based on racial discrimination. But believe it or not, there's a pretty strong racial aspect to uh, separating the vaccinated from the unvaccinated and punishing the unvaccinated by, who knows, you know, depriving them of their their uh, livelihood or, or whatever else. It's really spooky where this is headed right now. And if, if you don't see the danger, I don't know what to tell you other than, you know, look out. Here it comes. When you have the president threatening 100 million Americans with the loss of the, their livelihoods, unless... They obey his demand to get that shot. Our patience is running out. Yeah, or what? Politicians' words, you know, um, they only have power to the degree that you are willing to comply. 
And maybe I crossed that threshold a long time ago, but uh, I know for a fact where my line in the sand is. I know for a fact why I will not comply with any directive that robs me of my personal autonomy. And I know there's risk to this because the spinmeisters are hard at work, right? This is such a selfish thing. You just think it's all about you and your freedoms, man. And it's funny, the president in his remarks yesterday talked about, this isn't about personal freedom, man. But of course, simply saying that doesn't make it not about personal freedom. That's just a deflection. That's cover for what he really wants to do, which is to get people to comply. Again, I remind you, you don't have to comply. Rick Fuente says, The Democrat ne'er-do-wells that continue to push mask mandates, lockdowns, and lockouts, against which numerous and prestigious clinical studies have pointed out significant inadequacies, are latter-day talisman for new social orders that use imagery, stigmatization, and fear to inure obedience to government authority. It's why we're a vaccinated majority still hiding our faces and living out our lives in a society fearful of handshakes and hugs. Adding to the mistrust, Biden recently purchased vaccine boosters from Big Pharma behind the back of the FDA, bringing about a backlash of agency resignations. Shots will now be necessary every five to eight months to address the variant du jour of a viral bug that has already mutated thousands of times. Setting the table for a future despotism, Anthony Fauci has expanded the definition of what will be accepted as a full vaccine regimen. So with all the endless proselytizing and unforeseen outcomes, vaccines are quickly becoming the latter-day snake oil. Public resistance against forcing pharmaceuticals into our bodies will keep pushing back the goal line of normal life. Millions of hesitant black Americans, among others, will find themselves in the crosshairs, culturally isolated, unemployable, unable to travel, and segregated in every sense of the word from their fellow citizens. Unfazed, Democrat politicos will continue to leverage their faithful black vote to seek a biennial electoral advantage, create an inoculated caste system, and parrot the usual pandemic orthodoxy that keeps their fingers in the ballot box. Sorry, it's a lot to absorb. But I really think this is, this is where we're headed. So here's, here's the thing that you and I have to figure out. How committed are you to not yielding to unreasonable or immoral government dictates? And it makes me sad to say this because I know there are people who feel very strongly about freedom, but also who find themselves in an almost impossible situation. I mean, if you had to give up your livelihood, would you be willing to do it? See, a lot of people out there who are talkers, hey, myself included, you know, of course I would. I would do it in a heartbeat. I would give it up. I would stand firm. But it's quite another thing when you are actually looking at an end to your income or an inability to function in society. I mean, that's a hell of a place to put people. But we're not being put here by accident. This is intended to ramp up the pressure and get us to just freaking conform. Do what you're told. I've explained before on this program that it's taken me a very long time 
to embrace the entrepreneurial spirit and to step out there and create my own business and do my own thing and, and become a truly independent contractor rather than just an employee. And there are things I miss about being an employee. I miss, you know, I, I don't really miss the staff meetings that much, but I kind of do because I've worked with some really wonderful people over the years. I miss some of the office culture, the triumphs and tragedies of, of my fellow coworkers. I miss the steadiness of, you know, that uh, twice a month paycheck. You know, of having a retirement program that uh, was just right there a part of it, part of it, you know. Hey, they'll match your contribution up to this much. But I took that leap not so long ago to step out on my own and and it's exactly as scary as it sounds. I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's crazy. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought that, uh, that I would enjoy it as much because there is more risk in being an entrepreneur. There is risk of failure. But the people who have that entrepreneurial mindset right now have more options than the people who are simply going to go through life with that employee mindset. A hundred million people are affected by this mandate handed down by the president. It's not even a law, at least not a proper law, because it wasn't made by some lawmaking body, and it's being enforced by the private sector. I mean, I don't want to be too rude about uh, the the corporate entities that are getting in on this, and yes, we're going to mandate that uh, not only our employees, but any vendors that do business with us have to be vaccinated and show proof of this as well. Not to be indelicate, but screw them. Really. I honestly think that if more people understood what was at stake and where this is leading us, they would actually be okay with, with leaving their jobs, walking off their job, or forcing their boss to fire them. <clears throat> I actually believe that is the better route to go. If only because uh, when, when the class action lawsuits come, and they are going to come, it would probably look better if your boss fires you rather than you saying, well, I guess I'll just quit. But more than ever, I would encourage you, if you haven't thought about creating some kind of a small home-based business, picking up some kind of a hobby that you could monetize, this is the time to do it. Actually, the time to do it was a long time ago, and I, you know, I kick myself for not having done it many years earlier. But right now I find myself in a position where I work from home. I'm truly an independent contractor, and so that, uh, that means I, I don't have to worry about uh, following all of the different uh, you know, policies for every person or every organization that I work with. It makes you a little more immune to cancel culture. <clears throat> it's not that cancel culture couldn't come after me. But if they're trying to get my boss to fire me, he may be a jerk, but he's not going to fire me. You know how I know that? Because he's me. Ha! So there. <laughs> it's like a friend messaged me yesterday. He says, I guess I'm going to have to get used to being very poor starting soon. And I know that's a bitter pill. That's to, to even consider that is, is almost unthinkable. 
I don't want to have to reduce my lifestyle so drastically. But when I consider what is at stake, I would take the discomfort in order to retain my self-determination and to maintain my liberty. And there's a lot of social pressure that comes along with this too. More than anything, I hope that what this program serves as is just a reminder to those who are so inclined, who are willing to suffer, you know, the indignities and suffer the, the pain of not walking with the crowd. Know that you're not alone. Know that your example is appreciated and it actually is giving courage and encouragement to people that you don't even know about. So stay the course. It's what I'm going to do. I, you know, I'm not saying, finally, I found the hill on which I wish to die. I don't really wish to die. But at the same time, I'm not so afraid of death that I'm going to give up living as if the only purpose in life is to avoid this particular virus and to do what I'm told. Nope. Nope. I've made my decision and I'm at peace with it. Now you've got some decisions to make yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show.